Our scripture reading this evening will be taken from Acts chapter 4. Read the first four verses. Um, We'll begin reading, if you have a Pewback Bible, on page 911. Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. I'm fascinated as I read through Acts that every time the church began to grow, there were always problems that accompanied that growth. That's instructive, don't you think? To stop and think that every time the church was growing numerically, that's the kind of growth I'm talking about this evening. Every time there there were people being added to the Lord, there were always problems that accompanied, there were challenges that accompanied that growth. Alex just read Acts chapter four, verses one through four, a time when the Bible tells us that the number of disciples in Jerusalem approached 5,000. And they faced challenges from without. The priests and the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, they didn't like what was happening with this new group, this, this church that was belonging to Jesus. And then if you got your Bibles open, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 6 and look again at chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. And what you'll notice is that it says in verse 1, in the, these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the apostles had to stop the work that they were doing and address the problem, address the challenge. It seems to me that we would take a great deal of wisdom from God's word if we would read through Acts and look at how the early church related to one another, related to the world around them, and how they handled the challenges that came with growth. With that in mind, I'd like to share with you this evening five challenges that face every congregation as it begins to grow or as it continues to grow. That would include the church that meets here at Katy. As our numbers increase, more and more people are baptized, more and more people move into our community and place membership with us. What are some challenges that we, as the people of God here, ought to think about? Number one, we need to remember what our work is. That's a challenge. Mission creep is real. The idea that organizations, the idea that bodies of people forget their reason for being, that's a real thing in the world and it happens to the church more frequently than we might like to admit. We need to remember what our work is. What is our work? Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, we have the responsibility to equip people and to evangelize, to teach the world, go make disciples of all the nations, Jesus says, teaching them, baptizing them, and then teaching them some more to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's our work. That's the mission that Jesus himself has given us. 
We have a challenge, a mission to deprogram people from darkness. When someone comes out of the world, they are coming out of darkness and being delivered into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. And yet there's still a lot of darkness in our lives. When we become Christians, there's still a lot of things that need to be dealt with. And Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 commands us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have the challenge to indoctrinate people against error. You know, sometimes to hear people teach and preach God's word, you get the impression that there are no errors and there are no false doctrines that anybody needs to be aware of. And that's not true biblically and that's not true in the experience of the days in which we live. Ephesians 5 verses 18 and 19 talks to us about putting away wicked things like drunkenness and instead being filled with the Spirit and singing to one another and giving, uh, giving heed to God's Word and communicating with one another, indoctrinating one another against the errors and the problems and the false doctrines of our day. We have the work of being filled with God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You may or may not be aware of this, but there was a time in the past in our country when members of churches of Christ were known as walking Bibles. Members of churches of Christ, and there was a joke that went around in denominational groups. They said, if you're ever without a Bible in a court of law, just find a member of the church of Christ and put your hand on their head and, and you can swear somebody in. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Those days, unfortunately, are gone. We need to recapture a sense of being filled with God's word and a knowledge of what God's word has to say of giving God's authority, book, chapter, and verse for what we do and why we do it. We have a responsibility in our work to maintain reverence and a sense of awe and a sense of wonder in our worship. The idea that we are coming into the presence of Almighty God, that we're gathering as His people, and that this is what we're all about, the worship and the reverence and the honor of Almighty God. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in these things, those early Christians did. And it's a challenge for us in the 21st century to maintain that same sense of reverence and awe. It's a challenge to offer good news to all. You know, when I, when I put this on the list, Offering good news to all, I realize that we've already talked about the Great Commission, but I want to say it this way. Offering good news to all means that we are reaching out intentionally to people that look like us and the people that do not look like us. The people from the culture that we're comfortable with and the people from the cultures that we're not comfortable with. We have a responsibility to the world around us. And the world, if you haven't noticed, has come to Katy, Texas. And you can find cultures and, and nationalities from just about every country on the planet just within a few miles of this place. We have a challenge to remember what our work is. We offer good news to all. A second challenge that we face Growing congregations face the challenge of delegating and decentralizing. Delegating and decentralizing. If you're still looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 in your Bible, great example of this very principle in that passage. The Jews and the, and the, the Greek-speaking widows, they were, some of the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of, of benevolence for the widows. 
and that was a problem in the early church. And so the apostles could have done this. The apostles could have said, well, this is a real problem and we want to make sure the church is still growing and we want to be able to make sure that, that you know, there's no conflict with these widows that, that you know, f- spills over into the church at large. So we're going to stop what we're doing and we're going to take care of this problem. And a lot of the time in the Lord's church, the structure that you see looks a lot like that. An upside down pyramid where the elders have basically said, we're going to take care of a lot of questions and a lot of challenges and a lot of issues. We've taken that burden on ourselves, and we want everybody else to come through us. We're going to make those decisions. And what that does very practically is it creates a bottleneck, doesn't it? If you've been a part of an organization or at work where somebody in leadership decides that everything needs to flow through them personally and you've got to go to them personally to get a thumbs up or thumbs down on everything that's taking place, that really discourages and demoralizes people, but it also makes it a very inefficient way of getting things done, doesn't it? But that's not what the apostles did in Acts 6 verses 1 through 7. Look at what they did. In verse 2 in Acts chapter 6, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint for this duty. But we, apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so that's exactly what the church did. They, de- they delegated, they decentralized, they made sure the work was taken care of, and the apostles did not go around micromanaging those seven men. One of the great things about the congregation here at Katy that I've observed in the years that I've been here is that our eldership has a real desire to delegate to the deacons and to delegate to other members responsibilities and challenges and tasks that need to be done. If someone has delegated something to you, thank God for that responsibility, sincerely. Pray to God and say, God, thank you so much that that somebody in the church trusts me with with a task and a job and a responsibility. And then do this. Look at the task, the responsibility that's been given to you. Deacons, listen up. The task and responsibility that's been given to you and ask yourself the question, is this just the work of one person or do I need to delegate as well? Because the principles found over and over in Scripture, God is pleased when those who lead among the people of God properly delegate and decentralize. Exodus 18 is another case in point where Moses had the entire nation of Israel coming to him with their personal problems and their quibbles and their their arguments. And Moses was judging them all. And Jethro, his father-in-law, looked at him and said, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out doing this the challenge of delegating and decentralizing. And let me tell you this, if you want something done right, how do you have to do it? That's the, what's the expression? Do it yourself. If I want it done right, I want to do it myself. Those of us who delegate, those of us who are involved in this process, we have to realize that sometimes people that we delegate responsibility to, they're not going to do it the way we would do it. And we're going to have to be okay with that. It's a challenge, but if you're still looking at Acts chapter 6, when they delegated these seven men and they they appointed them over this business, look at what happens in verse 7. Acts chapter 6 verse 7, it says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God's wisdom was among these people because those apostles could properly delegate and the church grew and multiplied as a result. The same principle is true today. Challenge number three, 
we need to remember that the future is still in front of us and we need to properly consider the future. Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. He's talking about prophetic vision. He's talking about visions and and prophecies from God in that passage. But the principle, think about it, where there is no one looking to the future and asking questions like this, what is the congregation going to be challenged with in the next five to 10 years? What does the congregation face in the next one or two years? As we think about the future, what are some opportunities? What are some threats? What are some difficulties that we might face? We need to constantly be considering and thinking about the future, realizing ultimately the future's in God's hands. We don't know what our life is gonna be like tomorrow, James chapter four, verses 13 through 15, and yet at the same time, if God wills and the world still stands and things continue as they are right now, what do we need to be preparing for? Here's the difference between dying congregations and growing congregations. Dying congregations typically have no future plans. They have, they have not, they, they've stopped thinking about the future. The, the great days are in the past. The, the times that, that happened uh, that, that were good were behind us. Dying congregations tend to spend 90% of their finances on themselves. Dying congregations focus on worship almost exclusively. As long as there's somebody to lead the prayer and lead singing and somebody to preach, we're happy. Dying congregations struggle to incorporate new members into the work. Somebody places membership, a new person is baptized, and they're often left out of whatever work is going on in places like that. But living congregations, growing congregations, by contrast, they are God-centered and gospel-oriented. That is to say that there is a focus on God and who he is and his greatness and his presence in our lives and the gospel, the message that comes from God that all men can be saved through Jesus Christ, that all men need to come to know him and Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, verse 6. And not only are they God-centered and gospel-oriented, but they think about and they pray about opportunities in front of them. I'm always impressed in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 34, when the early church was threatened. We just read Acts 4, verses 1 through 4 a moment ago. When they were threatened, you know what they did? After the apostles were released, they went to their brethren and they all got down to their knees. The whole church did and they prayed together. You know what they prayed for? They didn't say, woe is us, oh God, we've been persecuted. They said, God, give us boldness because we see something of your plan and purpose and what's happening to us here. The early church thought about and they prayed about opportunities that were available to them. Where are those kinds of prayers among us now? Again, growing congregations strive for excellence in all they do. If the Lord's name is attached to it, it deserves our very very best effort, always. Growing congregations equip Christians for ministry. It's not just about a preacher or a Bible class teacher or a group of elders. It's not just about them being sufficient and equipped for ministry. Rather, the reason why we teach, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the reason why anybody should teach is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that they're prepared to live the Christian life and also they're prepared to teach others the gospel of Jesus Christ. Equipping Christians for ministry. Growing congregations have a strong emphasis on mission. Going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. 
Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 is impressive because the church in Antioch, as they were growing and multiplying and they were converting all kinds of Gentiles, they had some really good teachers at Antioch. Among their teachers, it says in Acts 13 verses 1 through 3, were two men, one named Saul, who later became Paul, and another named Barnabas. And you know what the early church in Antioch did? They sent their two best teachers into the mission field. They decided that they were going to send. The Holy Spirit commanded them to do this. But they took Paul and Barnabas and they sent them on that first missionary journey in Acts 13. Well, yeah, but think about what Paul and Barnabas could have done in the local congregation there in Antioch if they'd stayed. They could have done a lot of good. But Antioch, their hearts were bigger than just what was happening in Antioch. Growing congregations are like that. They think about what's going to happen in other places. They think about how they, can oper- how they have opportunities to reach other people in other nations. Difference between growing and dying congregations, considering the future. Next, we have a challenge to remain alert. It's easy just to feel like in times of peace and harmony, it's easy to feel like everything's just humming along, things are great. The Bible commands us and commands elders especially, those of you who are elders, to watch, remain alert. Do not go to sleep and do not take for granted that the things that exist right now will always exist the way that they do. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32, elders and the church in general is to watch for false doctrine, false teaching. From among your own selves, Paul says, there will arrive grievous wolves And they will not spare the flock. They'll take away the sheep. Be careful, be watchful, be alert. Discrimination within the body. Treating people differently based on the color of their skin, based on the the nationality that they have, the language that they speak. Discrimination based on where we come from and our educational level, based on economic backgrounds. It's a real problem even today in the Lord's church. Be alert, James 2 verses 1 through 10. The Bible commands us to be alert to apathy and lukewarmness. God saved us so that we could be his own people zealous for good works. And it's really easy, it's really easy to become apathetic and lukewarm in our service to God. Individually and congregationally, we need to be alert. We need to be alert to personality conflicts. Philippians 4.2 One of the main reasons why the book of Philippians, which is a book about joy, was written was because there were two ladies in the church that were not getting along. Their names were Euodia and Syntyche. And maybe they were arguing about who was going to teach ladies class. I don't know what it was. But somebody, Euodia decided she could do it and Syntyche wanted to do it. And people were lining up behind the two of them. And it was becoming a problem in the church. And one of the reasons Paul wrote Philippians was to tell these two ladies and to tell somebody else in the church You guys need to resolve this. You need to fix this. Because it's amazing how frequently personality conflicts among people in the body of Christ become major issues in the church. Immorality. 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 11, there was a man in the church in Corinth who had his father's wife, you remember? And the church was just kind of going along to get along. They were not dealing with this problem. They were not confronting this issue. And Paul told the church, you need to withdraw fellowship from that man. You need to not have any company with him. You need to deliver him over to Satan because that's how he's proved that he wants to live. It's still a problem 
in the Lord's church that immorality is rampant. The idea that we can just live as we want to and it doesn't matter in my life, my choice, my desire, whatever I want, that's what I can do. When we become Christians, we belong to God now and we also belong to one another and there's an accountability that comes with that. Worldliness, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, do not love the things in the world. The Bible commands us to be on the alert for worldliness, materialism, having an inordinate desire to express ourselves and to possess things and stuff. Be on the alert for these things. Discord in the body at large. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 13, the church was dividing in Corinth, not like Yodia and Syntyche, a personality conflict. Rather, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they were dividing because they liked certain preachers or apostles better than others. And so some of the church was saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. And they had all these little factions and parties and these people that got along with one another, but they didn't really see themselves as being a part of that group over there challenge of growing congregation to watch out for discord within the body. It needs to be dealt with prayerfully, wisely, but quickly. And then this, when we think about challenges for growing congregations, there is the challenge to demonstrate gratitude. If the church where you worship is growing, I'm talking about growing numerically, but you know, Numeric growth, numerical growth in and of itself doesn't always indicate a great deal about a congregation. It really doesn't. It's what's happening in people's hearts and what's happening in their lives. But when you see people being changed to be more like Jesus, and when you see people coming out of the world and becoming more like the Savior, that is an occasion, brothers and sisters and friends, for giving thanks. And sometimes if we're not dedicated to doing this, we're going to get the big head and we're going to get the idea that somehow it's our greatness and it's our competence and it's our ability that caused all this to happen. And that's just not true. May God forgive us for ever thinking that way. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. It's God's will for you. And certainly that must be the case for the people of God here at Katy. We must give thanks. What kinds of things must we give thanks for? For the potential that exists and the opportunities in front of us. You know, the early church needed to give thanks for the things that God had presented them with. And oftentimes God gives us really amazing, really neat opportunities. Acts 11 verse 23. Barnabas came, as we talked about this morning, to Antioch, and he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he encouraged the brethren, keep on doing what you're doing. He gave thanks for those brethren. We need to do that. We need to give thanks for the work of God's Word. It's not us that makes the difference in people's lives. It's the Word of God. We ought to pray for the Word of God to run and to multiply and to have an open door into people's hearts. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. And Acts 12, verse 24 says, the Word of God grew and multiplied greatly. And when we see that happening in people's lives, we ought to give thanks to God for it. We ought to give thanks in the local church for whatever absence of turmoil exists. We have, by and large, as a congregation, enjoyed quite an extended period of, gener generally speaking, of great unity. Do not think that that is always the case in local congregations. The church is always fragile. 
There are always challenges and difficulties that arise among us, but when there is a peace among the people of God, we ought to give thanks. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, the psalmist wrote. It's a good and pleasant thing when we live together and work together in unity. And we ought to give thanks continually for our salvation in Christ. What Jesus has done for us, the fact that he saved us from our sins and the fact that he wants to save everybody from their sins, we ought to give thanks for a savior like that. He has a worldwide vision. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. First, uh, first, uh, first Timothy chapter two, verses one through four. He wants everybody to be saved. We ought to give thanks for salvation in Christ. Every time you see a congregation growing in the Bible, numerically growing in terms of their maturity and their Christ-likeness, there are always, always challenges. May we think seriously about the challenges God has set before us and may we address them with faith in Him and with a desire to do His will in all things. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, we'd love to help you obey the gospel. Faith, repentance, and baptism. That's how somebody becomes a Christian. We'd like to talk to you about that if you've got questions. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you're here and you are a Christian and you'd like to, the prayers of God's people. We'd love to be able to pray with you and pray for you. If you have a need, won't you come all together? We stand and while we sing. Be safe.